Welcome back to Hey Look Listen. My name is Liam Sheehan and right off the bat I need to say that this isn't going to be a regular episode. This is a, do you know what, this isn't even an official episode, I'm going to say. See, uh, this podcast for us is, uh, it's still it's still just a hobby. It's something we do in our spare time. It kind of, it exists on the fringe of, of our lives and uh you know, we do it when we can, but life gets in the way and schedules get in the way and that's just the way it is. But uh, so we basically, we didn't have an episode ready for this week, but um, I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something anyway. And uh, if you have a mounting sense of dread right now, you know, search your feelings, you know it to be true. I am the only one here. Unfortunately, uh, I'm going solo on this one. I've never done anything like this. I feel really awkward immediately kind of being in a room talking to myself or you know talking to you but you're not here I don't know who you are who are you but yeah if you didn't um click away immediately well thank you very much and if you did uh, you rascal I can't stop you from doing that can I but I thought this would be a cool opportunity to um talk about one of my favorite ever chapters in video game history which is uh the rise of the playstation but rest assured Marcy and Owen will return and they'll bring with them their, um, you know, superior speaking voices and better diction. Uh, we're going to do an episode on The Last of Us. It's going to be our next proper episode. Look forward to that. It's a, one of our favourite games. Um, but yeah, I'm going, I'm going, I'm doing this alone this time. Well, I say I'm alone. I'm actually um, recording this in, uh, in my room. And um, I happen to have a photo on my desk of me, Marcy and Owen. Uh, from back in the day, we took it took it um, in a house party, and uh, yeah, I was going through my Gwen Stefani phase back then. You know, I was based my whole look around her, and holy shit! No, no, sorry, no. I was the first time I've, I haven't I haven't looked at that photo properly in ages, and I I just looked at it there and I thought I saw Edge from U two in the background at the house party. I, I think someone just put a hat on a banister. But to talk about the rise of the PlayStation, you have to talk about the rise of Nintendo. And to talk about the rise of Nintendo, you have to, in turn, talk about and the rise of video games and where they came from. Why do you have to talk about Nintendo to talk about the rise of PlayStation? Because to boil this little story down, this little chapter down, you know, elegantly or inelegantly, um, I don't know, the rise of the PlayStation coincides with... Um, Nintendo making, you know, being big meanies at just the wrong time, being stupid and mean, and I think it's really interesting and I think it's really funny. But why not go back to where video games came from, which is the same era that birthed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 70s. Now, video games, um, I'm specifically talking about console gaming in this one. This is, um, I don't know, this is going to be a much shorter episode than usual. I don't have time to talk about gaming uh, you know, all the avenues. But the first anime arc of games was the 70s. Is where they came from. Now, you know, actually I say that out loud. It's technically not true. And, um, you know, a lot of people will tell you that there was, there was games in, in some form or another in the 60s and the 50s, maybe even the 40s. But, you know, people who say that, you know, don't don't be alone in an elevator with them is all I say. But for the purposes of my little narrative here, we're beginning in the 70s. Which is where you would have seen the first um, home consoles come out. You know, games existed as kind of uh, arcade cabinet-y things. You know, that's where Pong came from. And I think Pong is 
best regarded, you know, even if it's not technically accurate, it's best regarded as, you know, that's where it all started. It all came from Pong. It all came from the magic of moving two lines and bouncing a ball around. And you had, like, um, I think the first ever console was called the Magnavox Odyssey. And, you know, then you had home consoles specifically for paying, playing Pong. And this is, uh, you know, these are the giants of which the PlayStation, my main subject, uh, stands on, essentially. And um, this is where it all started and where they all came from. But the funny thing about this early era of gaming is that it, uh, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. It's this whole isolated thing. And um, this is not going to be, um, I, I should have said earlier, this is not going to be hugely comprehensive. I'm kind of winging it here. I thought that would be more fun to do. I, it's something I enjoy doing more. I'm going from my memory here. But uh, so it, this is not like a comprehensive historical document. But what I lack in uh, my new detail, I'll uh, make up for in this, uh, a lot of chutzpah. And uh, yeah, gaming um, all through the 70s up into the early 80s, um, gaming ended essentially uh in what became known as the gaming crash of 83 and it was you know there was a lot of people who were vindicated by that there was a lot of people at the time saying this is just a fad this isn't art these lines and these balls they mean nothing to the entertainment industry and they were right um uh, at least in america um it didn't really happen in japan but in the west <laughs> gaming did fucking end and there's a few reasons why that happened um it was um well, it was actually the um, growing popularity of um, personal computers. It was one of the things, but I, I prefer um, the other aspect of it was just what always tends to happen when anything gets popular and starts making money, just a glut of shite. Uh, gaming became super popular. It became just had a had a grip on the hearts of children everywhere. So oh, the, the the money the the money grubbing people started wringing their hands. There was just too much. There was too many different consoles. You had your Commodore 64 and everything else you had in, in the early 80s. Too many consoles and way, way, way too many shit games. Like just a sea of shit games. And this isn't my era. I wasn't born for a long time here, but um, I'm not shitting on it. It's super important, but I will admit in, my, in terms of my, my love for gaming, I, I, I only kind of view this era kind of almost academically. I don't really have much... Uh, it doesn't give me the fuzzies. It doesn't give me the fuzzies in the tummies. Um, and if you're like old, because you are old if you're around for that um, era, I'm sorry. You, know, you have to believe me when I say that this, this era was like, crazy important and that there were many essential games. I could sit down and play Asteroids for 20 minutes and really enjoy it. That's a cool game. But despite that, there was just so much shit. Like so much absolute shit being sold to to children. You would wake up on Christmas morning and you you know, you're a little... 70s early 80s kid in your anorak or whatever and you're like mommy mommy i got this game and it was just like some crap version of pac-man or something but um yeah, very sad thank god i was born in 89 just before the berlin wall came down but this whole uh ending of gaming was kind of exemplified in one game it was um an adaptation of um, steven spielberg's et which was coming out and that was another thing as well there was um this was a thing when I was a kid as well with the with the later consoles. There was just so much tie-ins to thing. Oh, movie coming out, a popular TV show, make a game about it, make it for cheap, don't put much thought into it. And um, people more learned on the subject than me could probably point out a lot of good ones, but I don't know. They all seem shit, um, looking back at them. But the, the biggest, the king shit, was um, E.T., which was such a, So many of them were made 
and it was supposed to be the next big thing but it was such a bad game and popularity on console gaming in general was kind of starting to wane that it was a huge colossal failure any poor child or adult alike who did play the game uh, were horrified at its sheer badness and the the story goes that um well you know to simplify it that was the game that destroyed the gaming industry essentially it was just like this is enough fuck games we're done and the story goes that um they got a huge pile of them and buried them in the nevada desert and uh apparently that's true uh i always thought it was uh, kind of sounded like a, a fun myth but apparently it is true and i know this because i read it on the internet but that was the end of games it was over we had our fun. Japanese were still having a laugh. And the Japanese are important because what happened in America and the West in general was a huge vacuum was created. And games could either, like, just, you know, end and remain a, a cool memory or someone could fill that vacuum and enter Nintendo. Now, Nintendo had been um, making games a good while before this. Uh, one of the most important building blocks of... Of, of early gaming along, alongside Space Invaders and the likes was obviously Donkey Kong, which was interestingly supposed to be a Popeye game, another tie-in, but um, they lost the rights to it and they changed um, Popeye into a mustachioed dungarees-wearing man called Jumpman. They changed Olive Oil into another woman and they changed um, his rival Pluto into Donkey Kong and that that... That became a huge cultural pop cultural milestone. So Nintendo had been making games. They'd been making game and watches. These were little handheld things that they weren't even graphics barely, but they're really cool as a little um, curios of the past. And they and they'd made for Mario Brothers, which was also an arcade game. But they'd been making uh, like the handheld things in the arcades. But this was the time, um, just to coincide with ET killing the gaming industry in 1983 in America. Something else was happening in 1983 in Japan. Nintendo were releasing their first home console and it was called the Famicom, which is a portmanteau of family computer. And in 1985, the Famicom would be rebranded and redesigned and repackaged and it would come out as the Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES or the NES. And this is where my love for gaming and gaming history does start giving me the fuzzies um, again. There was a lot of very important design before this, but for me, the uh, the uh, Super Mario Brothers for the NES is one of the earliest and most important beginnings of the fundamentals of good game design. And it's become a kind of a cliche at this point, but if you're a burgeoning young game designer or a burgeoning young game fan in general, uh, the kind of stereotype, the stereotypical thing to say is you can learn a lot about game design just by playing the first level of Super Mario. Uh, it, it teaches you while you're playing and you don't even realize it. Um, a lot of modern games don't do that anymore. But um, yeah, I'm kind of waffling about, like this is supposed to be about PlayStation, but I don't know, I kind of want to establish um, Nintendo's rise to dominance. They, 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 they filled a void that was left behind and they absolutely grabbed gaming by a stranglehold and uh, Nintendo, they weren't a new company. They weren't even new to games, as I said. They've been doing it for a few years, but they're, they're absolutely not a new company in general. They've uh, been around for like a hundred years. Like they, they used to make Hanafuda playing cards. They used to make some cards with uh, pornography on them. That's right. And people were 
whacking off to Nintendo things long before Yoshi's big tongue. But Nintendo would uh, shepherd gaming into an absolute golden age with your with your Mario's, with your Zelda's, with your Metroids. And, you know, the, the glut happened again, actually. But, uh, you know, a lot of, just a lot, a lot, a lot of games on the NES. But um, it didn't matter this time because I think people loved gaming much more this time. And it was much more of a... I had much more of a cultural footprint than even before. This was like, this was really taking off. And Nintendo were the kings. And uh, Nintendo was the act to follow. Nintendo had the market uh, eating out of the palm of its hand. They had, they had a movie called The Wizard, starring Fred Savage, that was about um, a video game competition. And they like, you know, revealed Mario 3. And this was in a Hollywood movie. It was... A really weird time to be alive. Uh, it all seems like a kind of a fever dream now. Now, as previously stated, on the other side of that coin, um, you know, I have to bring it up. But I, as I said, PC gaming was um, happening as well. Uh, Nintendo, Nintendo was important to console gaming. But there's a whole other story that I'm not going to tell. If I was talking about PC gaming of uh, the 80s, I could talk about how uh, the DNA of Dungeons & Dragons... Uh, Started leaking into computers and creating the RPG genre, or how creators like Roberta Williams uh, were, you know, making story-driven fairy tales come to life. But I, I am not the man to talk about PC gaming. It's not my thing. Uh, my cousin Andy would be um, a brilliant person to do a podcast about PC gaming, but um, uh, unfortunately, he walked into a big Tesco two years ago, and we haven't found him yet. All I'm really trying to establish is that yeah, Nintendo were the kings. And um, obviously people were going to come for them. They weren't just going to leave Nintendo, you know, make all this mountains of cash. Um, Sega. Sega happened. I love Sega. Sega was my first. My first gaming. But yeah, Sega came along and they had, um, they had a console called the Master System. They had a handheld called the Game Gear Man. Another thing I'm ignoring is the handhelds. Actually, uh, Game Boy obviously happened in 1989. And that was... Jesus, that was even bigger than the NES. That was a huge thing. Everyone's mom was playing Tetris. But um, Sega came around as the first real rival to kind of um, bother Nintendo a little bit. And uh, Sega is a Japanese company, but it was the the ironclad will of uh, the American branch of Sega that really kind of made them a contender. There's a, there's a thing that the top executives and had a kind of a brief that they gave to um, their Japanese counterparts that were like, okay, here, here's what we need to do to fight Nintendo. And one of them was like, we need a character to rival Mario. And uh, and all our advertising campaigns need to be <laughs> specifically poking fun at Nintendo, which is you know, such a yank thing to do, am I right? <laughs> nudge, nudge. But um, yeah, that's what happened. Obviously, they came up with Sonic the Hedgehog, and he had 90s attitude in a way that Mario didn't. And yeah, there was ad campaigns that it was like, Sega Genesis does what Nintendo don't, and all this uh, very 90s uh, kind of schoolyard taunting type advertising. It's actually really funny. I should do a whole episode uh, about that sometime about Sega, but only if Marcy and Owen do it with me. I, I'm feeling so lonely. But graphics, how could I go this long without talking about graphics? Because graphics obviously became the main thing that would drive the video game industry forward, is that I was trying to attain better graphics. And uh, I have opinions about that. I have salty opinions about the gaming industry and the gaming fans' constant obsession with graphics to, uh, to the point I think it's been overall to the 
detriment of the creativity of the entire industry and I I kind of want to walk into a portal and go to a parallel universe where maybe the gaming industry put design philosophy ahead of graphics, graphics uh, more so and I think we would have had a better industry and I I don't think war would be a thing but um, graphics had to get better and Nintendo followed the Nintendo Entertainment System up with the Super Nintendo and that had 16-bit graphics and at the time their big rival as I said was Sega and they had the Sega Mega Drive and that had blast processing which was a made-up word that the American executives told um, Sega of Japan to advertise their thing just say you have blast processing and they were like that's not a thing though and this is how we beat Nintendo sit down and make up blast processing please but this is an absolute wonderful wonderful era of gaming and um in terms of like the games that came out around then absolute stone cold must play classics up to wazoo and nintendo did a lot of very interesting things to him start improving graphics um in that era on the super nintendo they came up with something called um a super fx chip to try to simulate 3d graphics um on a on a console that really couldn't do that because it was only 16-bit and thus we um step into the main event here the rise of 3d graphics and um which was which was obviously the logical next step to move this industry forward into um a new era i need to reiterate i might get some of this wrong i'm going on my own memories i want you to think of this podcast as if you met me in a smoky bar i i think i think it's by a lake and i'm a sailor and i say i'm going to tell you a story about video games but i'm drunk and also i have one eye and and an open head wound and i'm a weird kind of character but you know my story is certainly interesting even though some of it might be wrong because of the head wound but what happened was nintendo work it like here's what we do to get 3d graphics onto our super nintendo we're going to create an add-on for the super nintendo that you can put cd roms into and this sci-fi concept of cd rom was um kind of a lot of whispers at the time that this would be the next thing this would be the next best thing and obviously cd-roms were in over in the pc neck of the woods already and who did nintendo partner with in order to make this dream a reality but sony and ah uh, finally sony entered the story sony the creators of the playstation if anyone doesn't know i don't know if i said that i don't know i'm pretty sure that's a known thing <laughs> shit my phone's ringing hold on oh man uh uh oh is it it's my friend jeff spillan uh, actually i think i'll take this actually hold on hold on ooh ah jeff spillan is like ooh ah jeff spillan <laughs> i cannot man are you right <laughs> yeah i'm all right yeah oh, man last night was mental oh man you were langers how many drinks did you have? You must have had a thousand drinks last night. You were so drunk. I said, you must have had a thousand drinks last night. You were so drunk. Huh? Five drinks? <laughs> Unreal. Yeah, I had four drinks. One was a double, though. <laughs> Come here. I uh, saw you um, outside the bar afterwards. I saw you uh, chatting up a girl. Did uh, did uh, fucking Jeff Spillane get the ride last night? Did, did Jeff Spillane get the ride last night? Did, he, did you have sex, Jeff? Unreal. That's why they call you the rustler. <laughs> she was actually what? Oh shit. Oh, I'm sorry, man. Um, are you okay? 
Oh, well, no, obviously not. But um, but look, um, second cousin isn't cousin, you know. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, you know, if you did sire a child, it wouldn't be, like, too contaminated. I, I know, yeah, I know you can't have children since that time you did a whittle on an electric fence in Tato Park. But actually, man, I'm actually recording a podcast right now. I'll, I'll call you back, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Mad lad. Uh, sorry about that, guys. But yeah, Sony, who you presumably know are a massive multimedia conglomerate, but uh, at the time they were very interested in um, getting a getting a slice of the gaming industry. They were very interested in stepping in to um, to making game making hardware. Excuse me, making game consoles, and this was their way in. They were going to team up with the big boy himself, Nintendo. And they were going to make a proprietary disc add-on for the Super Nintendo. And everything was going really smoothly. And this is actually the reason why I wanted to, you know, I decided to, I'd, I'd, I'd do my little solo episode about this. Because I just think this part is like really petty. Nintendo, who I've said before on this podcast, I can't remember what episode, but I, I think that Nintendo are quite bullyish when they're on top. And I think one of the lads kind of, you know, said that that's how you win, boy. That's exactly what they said. And I agree with that. That's how businesses thrive and survive. But um, I don't know what was going on with Nintendo, but they, they were they, they were very up their own arse in, in this whole deal. And they just kind of backed out of it. No, I'll, I'll lay off Nintendo a little bit. I think there was um, um, disputes about how the revenue was going to be split. And they would instead partner with Philips. Um, to make the same thing, uh, the, the disc add-on for the Super Nintendo, and um, you know that breaks away into its own little odyssey. If you want to talk about what eventually came of that, the Philips CDI, um, it's a whole other thing. I'm not going to get into it. Um, and Sony, I believe, were offered to have a non-game design kind of role in helping this thing, but they, um, as far as I know, um, uh, the Sony president at the time, Norio Oga, was infuriated. He was livid about this whole thing. And that is very important. Eventually, Nintendo would lose um, interest in making a CD add-on um, for the Super Nintendo. It never really materialized in the form that was often talked about um, and that was planned. Um, they instead put their focus into the Super Nintendo's follow-up, the th- their third home console, which, I don't know, I might have my timeline is a bit wrong here, but that would eventually be codenamed the Ultra 64. But... Much like a bully child who wipes the blood from his nose with his dinosaur t-shirt in a moment of clarity and looks his bully in the eye and says, Fuck you, Brent. Dinosaurs are cool. Sony wiped the blood from their nose and said, Fuck you, Nintendo. Disc-based systems are cool. And if we can't make one that we can attach to your console, we'll just fucking make one. Um, so... Sony did not back down in their bid to enter the gaming industry and they decided that they were going to do it by themselves. They didn't need no help. And thus began um, the PlayStation project. Well, I said that like it was a government secret or something. I like that. Now, what I find um, further interesting about what went down after all this is I kind of have a theory or an opinion about the PlayStation's eventual success that... um, it wouldn't have been as successful as it was if not for, you know, what their main rivals were doing or what the decisions they made. And when I say main rivals, I'm talking about Nintendo and Sega. Nintendo and Sega were both um, preparing their um, next consoles. 
and um, Sony was a new kid in the block. But despite what I feel, how I feel about that, Sony started doing something very important. They started searching desperately for anyone, as many developers as they can, to kind of say, hey, don't make games for the Nintendo or Sega, we have a new console coming out. And it's going to have CD-ROMs. That's the important thing. Like I said earlier, CD-ROMs were like, they were in vogue, they were exciting. And look at all the potential you can do making games with CD-ROMs. Come come make games for us. And they were dogged. And I'll always respect um, them for, you know, they're trying to break into this, like, really kind of a closed industry. And I, I respect their doggedness at the time. But, like, <laughs> to talk about it, this kind of final step in the rise of the PlayStation, I just, I just, more so, I think you need to talk about not what the what Sony started doing for their console, <laughs> more like what Nintendo did and what Sega did, and what choices they started making. Really important one is that Nintendo for the Nintendo sixty four, which is what the Ultra sixty four would eventually be called, they decided to use cartridges, continue using cartridges like they did with all their consoles, for the Nintendo sixty four rather than. Um, CD-ROMs and that was seen as kind of backwards or at the very least um, you know unexciting in the face of this grand innovation and um, they did it for a few reasons um, they were obsessed with piracy uh, Nintendo wanted to protect their own properties obviously they're still like that to the ver- this very day um, uh, I think they lean towards mean in, in actually how anti-piracy they are. Obviously, you got to protect your things. But I'm digressing in a mumbly sort of way. Yeah, um, CD-ROMs were easy to, much, much easier, easier to pirate and cartridges weren't. And uh, But, you know, you had kind of caveats with the with um, this decision to to make this new console um, on have games with cartridges. And uh, so you have more... Um, processing power the n64 was a 64-bit console obviously while the playstation was a 32-bit console it was graphically um the 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 meteor uh, machine but uh games were much harder apparently to make uh for these things than they were for an lcd-rom and also you had much less memory graphic power you may have you may have better sound quality but just you have much much less room for things yeah enter squaresoft this is uh, another character coming in, coming into this uh, story. This is um, the Hobbits meeting Strider in uh, the Prancing Pony. Squaresoft um, are they make Final Fantasy essentially. Um, they're now called Square Enix. They merged with one of their biggest rivals uh, years ago, but um, they had a beautiful partnership with Nintendo all through the nintendo and super nintendo era they made final fantasy and that spawned many sequels and they made so many other cool games in those two consoles in fact i i don't think there's very few um companies who had such amazing run of games as um squaresoft did in uh, the, the 90s the 80s and 90s but especially the 90s and um yeah, and their games are becoming much more ambitious and narratively and, and everything in every kind of way final fantasy 6 was um it was a Super Nintendo game. It was it was still little little sprite little characters and but the, the ambition and scope of its story uh, was so much bigger and the music and everything it was so operatic. It was so yeah, it was so ambitious is the best word I've used it already. And um, SquareSoft were a, a hungry company. They were a company that were clearly going to want to strive for for more, and um, and that's exactly what they wanted. And like every company at the time, 
they came to the natural conclusion that the way forward was 3D graphics. Uh, they, want, they wanted to make a big 3D epic. And why not stick with Nintendo? Why not just um, stay on the side of Nintendo? They'd stayed at a, a brilliant partnership for many years. They've served each other well. Um, one word, cartridges. Um, they made a, a, a demo with Final Fantasy VI characters on the Nintendo 64's um, uh, engine. You can still see images of it and maybe videos if you look it up on the internet. And it, it looks kind of cool in that kind of mid-90s kind of way. But, uh, I don't know, Squaresoft envisioned full motion videos. Like, it was something you could not do on a cartridge, you could not do in the N64. Sections of the game that were essentially much higher quality graphics that were just cinematic. You couldn't fit those on a cartridge. You could absolutely fit them in a CD-ROM. If... If, if, if the game was too big on a CD-ROM, you could just put the rest of the game on another CD-ROM and you could carry over. You couldn't do that with cartridges. So CD-ROM was the place to start making big, epic, cinematic games. And that's exactly what Squaresoft wanted to do. And Nintendo made all the decisions that went against the grain of what Squaresoft wanted to do. And this is just one company. This isn't like... Uh, Squaresoft didn't lead solely to the success of the PlayStation, but it is extremely notable. All Sony had to do was, like I said, pursue developers to make games for their console. And they did all the things they should be. They, they, they got a company and, you know, they, made that, they were owned by them. And it was like, okay, it's the 90s, man. Um, mascot platformers are the thing. You know, Mario and Sonic and a hundred shit. <laughs> pretenders to the throne I um, note Marcy and Owen I would also love to do an episode on pla uh, platform ma mascot platforming game sometimes that'd be fun but um, yeah so they got Naughty Dog to make Crash Bandicoot they just got all they got a lot of developers on their side They, the CD-ROM enticed um, um, already um, auteur video game maker Hideo Kojima to to um, see that he could put his um, cine super cinematic, fully voice acted, um, soft reboot of his Metal Gear franchise, Metal Gear Solid. Uh, he, 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 the technology was definitely the home for something like that. But um, Squaresoft is the big one, it's the one I want to single out because they, they looked at what was on the N64 and they said, we cannot make what we want to make on this. And they broke up with Nintendo. And this was equally as dramatic <laughs> and emotional as that uh, the other one when when Nintendo broke up with Sony. It really was, and this all came out like the details of it came out years later. Um, you can read it all online, but it really was hurt feelings and betrayal. And yeah, SquareSoft basically saying we're gonna make if. if people who maybe not as much gamers don't know i'm alluding to final fantasy 7 here which we already did an episode on uh they made final fantasy they said we're gonna make final fantasy 7 for the ps1 um the playstation and that was huge and what about sega the other company um you know what sony poached like uh, it was the sega saturn which was the sega's um next uh, console was very similar yeah, the same um, graphic, uh, UCD-ROMs that had the same graphic uh, power as uh, the PlayStation, I think. Slightly different, but they were both 32-bit. But um, Sony got the games. They got all the developers to make make games for their console. Sega, Saturn. Um, their whole thing was arcade machines. You know, they were... 
Oh, they were huge in arcades, especially in Japan. They had Virtua Fighter was a huge, um, a huge thing, which is a very blocky-looking fighting game. But yeah, they couldn't really replicate that with the Saturn. It, it became very niche. It was for very geeky Westerners, <laughs> as opposed to uh, the very what ended up being a very mainstream selection of games for the PlayStation. And yeah, like I said, with Nintendo, Nintendo made these decisions with Nintendo 64 to make it this type of console that couldn't facilitate what a lot of developers wanted to make at the time. And yeah, so Sony just kind of had to do their thing and leave Nintendo kind of, you know, shoot themselves in the foot. And like Sega were just left in their own devices and they shot themselves in both their feet. It was just a, re- it was way too expensive. It didn't, the, the Sega Saturn, their console now was way too expensive. It didn't have enough um, games on it. Um, and they tried to do a thing in the West where they surprised everyone with its um, release. It was kind of like, basically, you know, if you could allow me some creative liberty, it was basically they just announced, I think it was an 3 just, ah, surprise, it's available now. And they didn't really have that kind of build-up that you want with a product. The anticipation and, you know, the people pre-booking, they just, it was a, it was a dumb move, so... Yeah, the two biggest rivals, the Sega Saturn just kind of failed all on its own, and Nintendo made a lot of weird decisions that ostracized them from their own empire that they created. They, they, they I think they had, I, I think they had the self confidence that they were like, we since the mid '80s, we've been kind of dictating where this uh, industry goes. Like we're 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 leading it wherever we want. We're the we're we're essentially games, you know. And this just wasn't the case. By denying um, the advent of CD-ROMs, um, they kind of they just went on a different path, and that was a path where a lot of people didn't want to follow consumers and developers. While the Sony PlayStation was sitting pretty as the the most desirable place to put your game if you're making a game for a console back in the mid '90s, and that's exactly what happened. It became a pop cultural landmark in ways that arguably in ways that no uh, games console had ever before it was the dawn of 3d graphics this is you know it's funny looking back at it now but this was an exciting time for um for games it it, it felt like a huge step um uh, just in, in it in it's in the evolutions it needed to go through you know um this was an exciting time and what a perfect time to enter the the video game industry to to, to enter the rat race because if you're at the forefront of this exciting time you know yeah you're you're going down in history and that's exactly what happened they went down in history and they created an empire that's still still going Uh, playstation is unstoppable and i've always just loved the bizarre circumstances that led to it and uh i another thing i've said before on this podcast is i think that era of gaming was really important it was an adolescent era though it was when games and the perception of games needed to grow up and it didn't grow up in a in a a, a genuinely mature way it was yeah it was kind of adolescent and it got dark it got edgy and after like years of uh, 2d platformers and bright colors i think a lot of people were you know maybe growing up and they wanted something a bit you know quote-unquote mature that's what they started getting with games on the playstation and that's what you got with final fantasy 7 which is this big steampunk looking dark epic you had metal gear solid you had resident evil you had um tomb raider like um geez you go back a few years and the icons of the gaming industry was a lovable plumber and dungaree as you jump into the the 
the edgy mid 90s and you were the one of the biggest gaming icons was an icon because people thought she was hot and she was on the cover of magazines you know and there were no more small plumber men there was hot ladies were were driving the the way forward now and there's just so many games that were incredibly important and incredibly innovative and incredibly just what they needed to be at that time now the nintendo 64 unlike the saturn over in sega's camp the nintendo 64 was not even close to a failure but it did put nintendo into second place they weren't at the forefront of this anymore and i've written a top 20 list of nintendo 64 games on our instagram i think i'm not saying it's the best console ever made but just because of my nostalgia and the games are on i think it might be my favorite console ever made but i'm just kind of demonstrating that as much as we can all look back at it and there was absolute stone cold classics and important pieces of video game history on that console there was many many more children in the 90s many 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 more many more children in the 90s grew up with a playstation in their house than there was with nintendo 64 playstation wrecked them uh oh, wreck, wrecked them i already know them but um it's interesting because i think if there's one game that was um, the most influential um to the gaming industry and the evolution of it at the time it's hands down mario 64 um the launch title of the nintendo 64 um, it is incredibly important. It was light years ahead of its time in terms of design, and that should have been the game that was um, learned from and copied and uh, uh, a source of inspiration. And just to, to, it was just in terms of in terms of how it taught about we're moving into a new dimension, three D graphics. In terms of how it thought about that, it was way ahead of the curve, and it, obviously it was influential, but. The things at the time that ended up kind of um, kind of sh- paving the, the road of where the gaming industry wasn't going to go. It wasn't really this kind of design stuff. It was the tones. It was that adolescent. It was the cinema, adolescent cinematicness. It was, it, was, it was all that. And, that's, and that all came from the PlayStation. Every single thing that was, in, that was uh, influential to the larger sphere of pop culture in that time came from the PlayStation. It was the king. I'm using the king metaphor again. And it kind of... Um, you jump forward another generation after that and you get the PlayStation 2 and the GameCube and that's a similar thing really except more in both cases more in the sense that the PlayStation 2 became even more ubiquitous and popular and influential and just an absolute icon of a, of a device and the GameCube is perhaps even weirder arguably than the N64 and it was even more um, not the top contender I did it was more niche than even the N64. It was, it had a handle. That's pretty cool. And, you know, and Microsoft entered the fray around that generation too, but that's a whole different tale. And it, it, like I said, Sony, Sony would um, win that, that generation and that victory would keep them sitting pretty for until now, until the modern age. And there's some highs and lows. You know, the PlayStation 3 went a bit wrong in ways, but um, I think, I think, uh, Jesus, Microsoft to the Xbox 360 might have surpassed them there for a while, but they're, I think PlayStation are still the quintessential brand of games. Nintendo are interesting. Nintendo would, um, they would fade into second and third place in the market. They would, like, when I grew up, Nintendo were not the, <laughs> the top guys at all. And that's how I knew them. That's how I learned to love them as the kind of underdog who were making amazing games that, you know, less people were playing. 
and there's, there's a lot of the big N64 games and GameCube games a lot of people played, but I think sometimes people forget just how many more people played the PlayStation, as I said, and play it, and much, much more people played Resident Evil than played Ocarina of Time. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. And um, but Nintendo would eventually, through sheer force of will, through sheer innovation, they would claw themselves back on top with the with the Wii, and um, that came out in an era of um, you know the Apple era, the era of devices and things with funny names and with sleek designs and Nintendo just capitalized and all that and they did what they did best they did what no one else was doing and um innovated and yeah they were back on top they were the kings again that was a really really interesting time for games um but I'm much more fascinated Nintendo now um like I said I think the PlayStation was um what the mid-90s needed what mid-90s kind of pop culture needed it needed to be kind of growing up a little bit in compared to in comparison to what the the little quote-unquote kiddie things that people were growing up with um and that's why nintendo well all those other reasons why nintendo failed i shouldn't step over um my own feet here but um I think that's one of the reasons why like nintendo were in second place and a little bit more obscured from the limelight but these days with the Nintendo Switch, and there's many innovations uh, that the Switch made away, it's a, a huge success. But I think we just live in the darkest time these days, and I think everyone just kind of feels it in their bones. There's, there's an anxiety. Even before we lived through the only viral pandemic in living memory, there was, there was just an uh, encroaching collective fear, and I think a lot of young people growing up I can feel it, and I... I just think it's prevalent and I think this is an era where people will naturally without much prodding look to the simple joys of an animal crossing or the beautiful quietness of a breath of the wild. I think it's the most interesting era of Nintendo in a long time because I think unlike the Wii which they just fought, they fought and they and then they put themselves back on top by being a good company. I think time we live in dictated Nintendo success. I think the world needs Nintendo right now. And I'm wondering now what I'm going to name this episode. It was going to be more about the the PlayStation. But I think this is just a, a, a broader, more rambly subject matter I went for. Um, kind of just ended up talking about a few things that interest me in very vague details. If any of this interests you, maybe read up on it. There's a ton of details I left out, but it's a, a really, a really cool chronicle a really cool tale and i guess i'll just leave it with the with the with the, with the notion that yeah playstation stood on by and let their competitors fail in interesting ways and and they're still reaping the rewards from that and when hey look listen returns we will be legion there will be three of us and we're going to do an episode on the last of us like i said uh this was um an experiment for me uh if you made it this far, I thank you for it. Thank you very much. Uh, this was this was weird. And yeah, I will see you next time. Thank you very much.